This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the Executive Director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey about the $30 billion capital plan to rebuild the airport facilities. In the news, an unruly passenger is fined almost $40,000 for costs related to the resulting flight delay. FAA certification changes for remote airport tower operations, public charter flights and regulatory loopholes, American Airlines flight attendants are poised for a holiday season strike, and the FAA is allowing graduates of college and university air traffic control programs to skip training and go right to ATC facilities. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 775 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. Of course, he's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy to be here with everyone. That's right. We're coming up on Turkey Day. Rob Mark is also with us. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a business jet pilot, a CFI, and he spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, evening to everybody, and uh, to second what Max had to say, good evening to all the turkeys uh, <laughs> listening tonight. That's not what I said. <laughs> Also and with us, Max is going to say. And speaking of turkeys, I know that was tempting. It was and I, in my head. I I said it in my head, and then I said, "No, don't say it out loud." So instead, I'll just say we're also joined by our main man, Micah. Hey, great to be here. And uh, yes, uh, to reiterate, happy Thanksgiving. And if you're our neighbor to the north in Canada, hope you already had a wonderful Thanksgiving. True. Yes. Yes. Our friend David Vanderhoof is off this week. He's got a meeting over at the museum. Unfortunately, this is our second try at this episode. We had some uh, significant technical issues yesterday, 24 hours ago, as we tried to record this. But we think we've got those resolved, and uh, David was unable to to join tonight, but uh, the rest of us are here. And Max, that doesn't even count the technical issues we had with our guest that is a pre-recorded segment this time. It is a pre-recorded segment. We have uh, coming up uh, Rick Cotton. Now, he's the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And as you can imagine with someone in that position, he's very busy managing the $30 billion capital plan to rebuild the airports and the transportation facilities. So he was unable to join us at our regular recording time. But we did manage to speak to him last week, and we recorded that conversation. So we'll have that coming up. But first, let's jump right into this week's aviation news stories. I assume you guys are ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the Midwest. And mainly ready. Our first story comes from USA Today. This is an expensive flight. American Airlines passenger fined almost $40,000 for being disruptive. Well, 
This uh, individual pled guilty to interfering with a flight crew member, and the federal district court in Arizona ordered the passenger to pay American Airlines $38,952 in restitution. It's hard to feel sorry for the woman. I love this story. I really do, because we, we talked about this kind of thing so much during the pandemic uh, of people losing their minds in the cabin of an airplane and nobody wanting to take any action or they were unable to take action. Uh, but this time, I think uh, I know why the, uh, uh, the the judge came up with $38,952 uh, because this this flight was headed to uh, Hawaii from, from Phoenix and it had a turnaround. So my guess is that somebody asked Americans, how much gas do you guys think you wasted, uh, you know, getting out as far over the Pacific as you were? And they said, oh, I don't know, 38000 and some change or something like that. But, uh, uh, but also, uh, you know, she spent some time in the slammer for this. So they, all they said was that uh, she interfered with the flight attendants carrying out their duties. Boy, this must have been some humdinger of a uh, uh, of an incident. Yeah, it sounds that way. The uh, and this uh, took place back in February 2022 and uh, this flight this American flight um according to the Department of Justice, this passenger she uh, used profanity, threatened the flight crew as well as passengers on board. And as you said, Rob, the captain ultimately decided to turn the plane back. And yes, she was sentenced in addition to the fine to time served. That was a little over three and a half months and three years of supervised release. And she's no longer allowed to upgrade to first class on American Airlines. <laughs> yeah, well, she's no longer allowed to get on a plane uh, of American <laughs> Airlines or anyone else during those three years. In fact, she's um, barred from flying commercially without prior authorization. So I, I don't know who, who might give that. I don't think point. I've heard that before, though. I mean, I, I realize this, that happened in this incident, but have, have you guys heard of, a, of an airline or the government uh, prohibiting somebody from uh, traveling by air again after an incident? No, but a judge can do whatever they want, and I think that's oh, probably a pretty yeah. darn reasonable thing. You know, it's, it's kind of nice when they construct uh, sentences that fit the crime and banning someone from flying for three years, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard of airlines banning people from that specific airline, but never uh, an overall banishment. Uh, but what I get curious about in situations like this yeah, she served uh, uh, through over three and a half months in prison and has this three years of supervised release, release where she cannot fly. But I'm wondering that $40,000, I wonder if we'll ever see that or how often is a person who gets into this situation actually when it comes right down to it, judgment proof? And will they be able to, do they really need to be just imprisoned and banned because nobody's ever going to see that money? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how the uh, uh, how often the collection of the of the fine actually takes place. If it's all the time or hardly ever, I don't know. And we don't really have debtors' prisons in the U.S. I mean, that used to be a well, big yeah. thing years ago in in England. So I think even if people can't pay the fine, they don't throw them in jail because they're certainly never going to pay the fine if you if you put them in jail. 
You know, there was another uh, recent incident that that made the national news where uh, a, a woman on a flight, um, she she was uh, singing, and I don't remember the full the full story. I think she was she had just been nominated for an award or or something like that, and so she was just you know sitting singing before the plane took off. I, I think, uh, but a, a flight attendant came by and told her to stop, stop singing. She was being disruptive, turn around in her seat and just be quiet. And she was trying to explain that, you know, she was just singing. No one's, you know, she's entertaining the, the passengers around her. Well, that, that didn't impress the flight attendant uh, who really started to use language like, you know, are you going to sit quietly? And, you know, it started to, uh, to elevate and I had two thoughts. I mean, one thought is that, hey, that's, come on. I mean, this woman is just you know, doing something nice for the passengers around her. But the bigger issue to me is that the flight attendant is telling her what she needs to do. And I think more people need to understand that whatever the flight attendant, whatever the, you know, the crew tells you to do, that's what you have to do. It's not, it's not a negotiation. It's not open for debate. Even, you know, if you think you're, that you're right and they're wrong, it doesn't matter. You have to do whatever the crew tells you to do. And I think, I don't think that's fully appreciated by the general flying public. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I'm always on my best behavior. You know, I used to make, you know, silly jokes and stuff like that. But man, when I'm sitting in the exit row and they say, do you speak English? It's like, yes. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to get tossed out of the row. If, you know, if they're annoyed for any reason, man, you know, you just lost your seat and you're somewhere else in in the airplane. So yeah, I mean, you really need to be on your best behavior. And I think in terms of these kinds of incidents, such as the lady who was thrown in jail, I suspect that a very high percentage of those involve a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, quite possibly, yes. All right, our next uh, story, this comes from Reason.org. Another remote-controlled tower option bites the dust. Uh, This is by Bob Poole, who was on our show a long time ago. I don't remember exactly when. It might have been 10 years ago uh, that uh, thereabouts that Bob Poole was was on the show. He writes uh, the, well, several things, but the Aviation Policy Newsletter is here. And this is about a remote control tower. So, Rob, maybe you could just baseline people a little bit and tell us, uh, what does it mean, a remote tower? It doesn't mean that it's operating on remote control. Did I say uh, control? I said remote. The title says remote control tower, I think. Uh, well, it is a remote... Control con- tower. ...comma control tower. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that... I actually wrote that, so I'm... I'm bad. Sorry. Um, but no, the um, uh, the towers are um, built on on airports or at airports where there is enough traffic to uh, warrant air traffic control services, but uh, the the local government just has not built a building, or they don't have the approval yet from FAA to uh, build the building, and they can put one of these remote tower operations into uh, into effect pretty quickly because all they are essentially are the uh, radio antennas and uh, and a bunch of high definition cameras uh, attached to a pole sticking up maybe above the terminal or a hangar or something and uh, they the, the uh, feed from these uh, cameras 
can be uh, piped into a location that's at the base of the uh, airport building. It could be in a basement. It could be 100 miles away. And the uh, feed is then added to a bunch of um, uh, high-definition screens and sort of imagine kind of a stadium seating, kind of half round room. And it, if you look left and right uh, on these screens, you will think that you are looking outside the windows of a tower and that you can see the whole airport uh, down below on the ramp and, and above and everything else. It's really cool. And, and what is most important is that it costs a fraction uh, of a dime compared to what it costs the FAA or a local provider to build a building. Uh, and again, they can be in, in, an, in an up and running in, I don't know, 30 days. So they're pretty cool. But of course, the FAA didn't like it because they didn't invent it. And uh, we had, uh, in fact, we had a story at Jetwine. In fact, Max uh, Trescott and I talked about it on his show as well. I don't know what, a couple of months ago, maybe, Max? Yeah, that was in September. It was episode uh, 292. And I want to compliment you on all the research you did because you, you worked on that for probably six, eight weeks before we did that show and did a tremendous amount of research. And there were just two of these remote towers in the U.S. and both are now shut down. Right. And they're both shut down because I I thought it was just incredible when I read uh, why they were shut down because uh, – at once the uh, the original system in uh, Leesburg was being uh, created by Saab, uh, the Swedish company, and Sea Ridge was handling the one in uh, Colorado at the what's the name of the airport? Sure, it's the yeah, Northern Regional, which is in Fort Collins slash uh, Loveland, Colorado. And I actually was at that airport. I think in August and got a chance to see some of the infrastructure that they had there. I, I called and they wouldn't let me in the building, <laughs> but, at the, but at that point they had actually already decommissioned it. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's really sad because what, what they did to Saab and Sea Ridge both is that, uh, well, in fact, in uh, Saab had been testing this uh, remote tower at uh, Leesburg, Virginia, just outside DC for, I believe, Three, I believe it was three years, and it was just going gangbusters. Everybody loved it. The traffic count at the airport increased by, oh, I think it was 50%. So it was up in the upper 70s. Uh, and, and so, of course, the airport businesses uh, loved it. Uh, but then the FAA said, okay, that was great, but now we're going to change what you need to do in order to get this thing certified. And and the Saab people went, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. The change, I think, was in March 2023. And there was uh, uh, an announcement. The FAA said that in order to have a remote technology system certified for a U.S. airport, obviously, first of all, it has to be installed at the Atlantic City, New Jersey airport. Now, you might ask, why the Atlantic City? Well, that's where the FAA Tech Center is located. All right. So they want to have, apparently, it seems, hands-on look at whatever system is being proposed. But there's more. Also, the Tech Center staff must be allowed to reverse engineer the system over three years so that the FAA can determine if the system meets the certification requirements. And so... Sea Ridge and 
and others. There are a number of different uh, providers of this, uh, Frequentis and Kongsberg in Europe. Uh, you know, view this as kind of onerous, I think, and uh, it's, it's, it's too much for them to, uh, um, to stomach this kind of requirement to get certified. Well, what I said in the story was that FAA was absolutely clueless about this. And I, I think that trying to get them to reverse engineer a system that was already up and running to uh, see if they can figure out if it meets the certification standards is is really pretty bad because you have these contractors who have great reputations and they said, hey, tell us what you want and we'll build it to those that standard. Uh, and, yeah, but and this... Boeing has said that too, you know, <laughs> tell us what you want. Boeing says, we'll build it and, you know, look at what we've come up with sometime. Well, that's true, but this is not, I don't, I think we'd be mixing apples and oranges in this particular case. But I think what was even more interesting is that they wanted them to install the system at Atlantic City, as Max said, and then uh, as, uh, you know, Max Trescott and I spoke about, what would that do? Because Atlantic City already has an FAA tower, and and how are they going to try to figure out how to make these systems work? Well, and the uh, story that Bob wrote had a had a great uh, had a great ending to it. That uh, uh, you know, again, they wanted this uh, these uh, towers at Atlantic City for passive testing at the tech center. Uh, uh, where, of course, they don't do active testing there because it's not allowed at the Atlantic City Airport because that's where the tech center is located. And, of course, they also have that FAA tower. So in order to become fully certified, active testing will have to take place at the airport where the project is located, meaning sending it back to Loveland or sending it back to Leesburg. So if you follow the train of thought there that these started at these individual airports. They got shut down. They wanted to move them to Atlantic City for certification, but they can't certify them there because they can't actually operate them there. So they have to go back to the original airports. And guys, you just have the definition of why I was not successful working for FAA because I would sit there and go, what? Huh? I don't. You you want it? Uh, that's the way they think, and uh, it, it's just a, sa- a shame because the the users of the system are missing out on air traffic control services where they could be up and running uh, very quickly at a minimal cost. So, let me ask a, a question, Rob, because you know, a, a, as a pilot, I don't know if you would be comfortable flying an aircraft remotely because of situational awareness, which you don't quite have. Uh, you know, like you wouldn't want to fly a passenger airplane. Like are, are you talking about me personally either. having no situational awareness? But but will you have the same situational awareness? I mean, do you get when you have a remote tower? Would the operator have that uh, the correct situational awareness to actually control? Well, I'm not sure if we're talking about the same thing because the control tower is not does not have a hand in flying the airplane. 
No, it, but the, the control tower can actually see the field and has situational awareness of what's happening on the runway with the, with the landing, et cetera, and so on. And, and you need situational awareness to understand what's happening all around you. And what's the difference in terms of being able to have situational awareness as a controller versus having situational awareness as a pilot flying? I mean, why would one be okay and one not be okay? I, I think it's totally different. I, I don't it's absolutely that. important. Uh, controllers need just as much situational awareness of what they're doing on the ground and in the airspace around them as a pilot does in the cockpit and the airspace around them. But the way that these um, cameras are put together, it allows them a, a very wide field of vision vertically uh, and laterally that they can look up in in a room where these screens are, and they can see things that are above them and around them and behind them. It's not a limited field of vision. In fact, it gives them quite a good field of vision. So, I mean, and that's, uh, but that's a, that's a very legitimate uh, question. All right, let's push forward. Uh, we have an, an item here. Big U.S. airlines fight over safety of travel hack charter flights. And travel hack is in quotes. And this is about, Public charter flights. Public charter flights are, uh, well, they have limited schedules, maybe only once or twice weekly, and they have uh, set departure and arrival times, and booking is by individual seat. You don't charter the whole aircraft. You don't charter a section for a group by individual seat. Um, These flights are typically available during the tourist season. So it's a way that charter operators can kind of act like a mainline uh, airline sell individual seats on what is essentially a, a charter flight. Some of these flights are operated by tour operators. Sometimes uh, airlines uh, will, will do this as well. Sometimes these are arranged by clubs or organizations, also sometimes called affinity charter flights. So, uh, Some charter operators offer these flights from private terminals, and then they market themselves as providing flights without the the usual hassle of the large terminal. You can avoid long security lines, boarding lines, and and so forth. So there's an example of that uh, Dallas-based JSX. They operate a a 30-seat Embraer 135 and 145 fleet. Um, They even call themselves the ultimate travel hack. Flyers can, quote, ditch the traditional airport route and arrive at our crowd-free terminals just 20 minutes before takeoff. So um, some of the airlines, uh, particularly American and Southwest, uh, they are not thrilled with uh, these kinds of uh, operations, JSX being an example. Yeah, it's kind of a loophole so that... um a uh, Part 135 can operate as a Part 121, so to speak, without the 1,500-hour requirement, without the TSA requirements, without any of those things. Yeah, JSX is probably the best known of all these services, and they've been getting a lot of pushback. For example, I don't know if we covered this story, but back in the summertime, there was a lot going on at the John Wayne Airport in Orange County in Southern California where uh, the other airlines 
were pushing the county supervisors to prevent uh, an airline like JSX from using the uh, general terminal and forcing them to have to go to a, uh, a gate just like all the other airlines do. So they've been working long and hard to try and squeeze JSX because, frankly, they don't like the competition. But but this this story is also about what uh, private business travel is like aboard a business jet. It, we, we've been like that forever. I mean, that we would uh, operate from a, 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 a non-dedicated terminal on an airport, and we'd have passengers drive up uh, uh, with their car uh, right up to the side of the airplane. Somebody who was the flunky, usually me, had to take the bags out of the trunk and put them in the back of the airplane to balance the load. And as soon as we were loaded, they'd say, okay, let's go. And off we went. However, the, you know, and the, the, the people are, are complaining about the security aspect. We never carried people that we did not know personally. Uh, I mean, it was the boss. It was the boss's family. It was somebody that the boss uh, vouched for or that some other senior employee vouched for. So it was a little different, but also to Micah's point about the 135 and the sort of pseudo 121 and the 1500 hour, there's a lot of apples and oranges getting mixed up there because um, part 135 does not require a first officer to uh, hold an ATP certificate like they do now at a 121 airline, which are the big ones, the the Americans, the Deltas, the Uniteds, and Southwest, et cetera. Um, however, that rule came into effect after a Colgan crash. Uh, a, uh, a Dash 8 crashed in uh, Buffalo 12, 14 years ago. 2009, I believe. And, and to appease the families... Uh, they they went. I mean, these people were very dedicated. I spoke to a number of them, uh, and they they just wanted something to change to prevent that kind of crash from happening again. Congress said, you know, they ended up doing this fifteen hundred hour thing. It's really not the hours. All that does is the fifteen hundred hours makes you eligible for an airline transport pilot certificate, and. Um, so that, that sounded interesting. However, uh, in this case, we never were able, no one was ever able to prove that because the pilots of the Colgan aircraft that crashed in Buffalo, uh, you know, met the requirements, well, then you'd think, well, wait, wait, if they had the requirements of the 1,500 hours, then what was the point? Because they still lost control of the airplane. But that's what Congress said, this is what we're going to do. It's kind of like going back to that story about the FAA and the remote tower option. It didn't have to make sense. It just had to be the way we want it to be because we want it to be that way. And so ALPA, you know, the Airline Pilots Association, a number of the larger carriers have have pushed this story until, the you know, it's, it's just ad infinitum. And, uh, but the the lack of... Uh, an ATP certificate for somebody in the right seat of an airplane does not necessarily mean that they're they're an unsafe pilot, um, but they don't want to be changing any standards here. So 
they've they've been telling the world that JSX is you know they don't meet the standards of a real airline and they're not trained the same and they're not as good and it's it's not a safe operation. It, one has nothing to do with the other. But what this is 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 scheduled non scheduled. They charter a plane, they schedule it for a certain time, and then they sell individual tickets, and that's where it gets a little thrown off. Oh, I, I agree. It's very confusing. But right now, um, uh, you know, this is, uh, as Max said, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the big guys trying to squash this little guy because they don't want the competition because they think that if people are able to fly from Waco, Texas to uh, Albuquerque on a, on a, you know, a jet of this size that only has seats for maybe 30 people and they're comfortable and they can come and go kind of as, you know, without a lot of hassle and 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 uh, they don't have to uh, worry about losing their bags and that they might really start to like it. Uh, and uh, that's that's what they're really concerned about. Um, so we'll see where this whole thing goes with JSX. Yeah. And not everybody is opposed to this approach because United Airlines and JetBlue, for example, they each own a stake in JSX. So some of the big guys, you know, don't want to see this type of uh, thing going on. And other, other big guys say, well, you know, let's invest in it and we'll be part of it. But you also don't hear anybody complaining to United or JetBlue. So you guys don't think, you think it's okay that we're not operating, these guys are not operating safely. Uh, they don't get into that kind of battle no. with United and JetBlue. So, um, cause they wouldn't want to hear the answers. Next item, uh, this is uh, concerning American Airlines flight attendants. Uh, they've been negotiating a new contract with the airline. The airline has proposed a 19% pay raise over the four-year contract. Meanwhile, the Association of Professional Flight Attendants wants a 50% pay, ri- uh, pay rise. And there is uh, the possibility that the flight attendants may go on strike. Uh, the timing of this kind of puts it right near Christmas travel season, um, which uh, could represent a big problem. So uh, in order to actually go on strike, um, the uh, the National Mediation Board uh, has to uh, give its blessing to a strike. So there's a process for granting that the uh, AFPA, uh, the APFA, the Flight Attendants Union, um, has, uh, as I see, since this article, Rob, has uh, requested the National Mediation Board to uh, to go on strike. And, of course, there's a 30-day cooling-off period. So that's what puts this right around Christmas time. Sure, they have to be released from uh, mediation. And uh, so uh, they've requested it. Last we've heard, there has not been an answer to that. But if they did release them for mediation, the 30-day cooling-off period would start. And then once that's over, who knows what's going to happen? Because let's face it, what they want to do, the flight attendants, this is a negotiating tactic. They want to create some chaos. They want to make it uncomfortable, not because they don't like the passengers, but unfortunately, they, they want to make it uncomfortable for management at American 
to to just sit back and do nothing. Uh, they're hoping that, you know, as this gets, you know, if they were released and it draws closer to Christmas, they'd say, well, these guys are probably going to settle because they're going to lose gazillions. Look at what they, the uh, automobile companies have lost during the uh, the auto strike. So it's, they don't want to see the same thing at the uh, airlines, but you can only negotiate so much. Right, right. So this is very much a stay tuned kind of a uh, kind of a story, and and we'll see. Um, one final item. This is from Avweb. FAA now says uh, ATCTI grads can skip Oak City Training Academy. So this pertains to uh, air traffic controllers who uh, go through a process. And the FAA is now saying that graduates of college and university air traffic control uh, programs uh, can skip training at the ATC Academy in Oklahoma City, and they can go directly to on-the-job training at the control towers. Um, So, I mean, that will presumably move a lot of new, freshly minted or almost minted your traffic controllers into the towers. You mean they don't have to work in Atlantic City first and be reverse engineered? I, I, I don't. I don't understand this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this this could be a a real time saver, uh, I think, for FAA and uh, for the for the industry. I mean, they need they need people out in the in the towers and and radar rooms. When I went through, I was ex-military, so my military experience counted for me not having to go to Oklahoma City. Initially, I did have to go back for radar training, but they're saying, hey, if you've been through the college training programs at a community college, they've gone through everything they need to earn their... uh, It's kind of like taking the written uh, exam uh, for a, uh, a pilot certificate, um, then you just need to take the check ride, or in this case, you need to get through the training in the control tower, and somebody says this person's good to work by themselves. So, um, uh, but again, it, it, we just hope that uh, we uh, we don't have another government shutdown, which we thought we might last week, and that would bring all that training to a halt anyway. And what's great about this is that uh, by having that direct entry, it frees up extra seats in that 12-week training program in Oklahoma so that we get, we're talking about more controllers, which is what we really need right now. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we recorded a conversation with Rick Cotton, the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Now, in a previous episode... We commented about the $30 billion plan underway to create world-class transportation facilities. So Brian Coleman, Micah, and I spoke with Rick about that massive project. Uh, we're, we're really grateful for the time we had with Rick, but it was short, and we would have loved to discuss some other aspects of what's happening at the airports. And perhaps another time we'll have that opportunity. But... Here's our conversation with Rick Cotton. 
I'm Max Flight, and I'm joined by Brian Coleman and Micah. And our guest this episode is Rick Cotton. He's the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. That's a post he's held since August 2017. Prior to joining the Port Authority, Rick served as New York State's special counselor to the governor for interagency initiatives. He focused on the state's major downstate infrastructure projects such as LaGuardia and JFK airports, the Moynihan Train Hall and Penn Farley Complex, the new Tappan Zee Bridge, which, Rick, I am a really big fan of. Maybe we can talk about that later. Also, the expansion of the Javits Center and MTA's Second Avenue subway project. So, Rick, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, delighted to be with you. Rick, you know, if you're, if you're from the Northeast USA, you know exactly what the New Jersey, New York Port Authority is. But we have listeners all over the world. So you can you tell us what the Port Authority is and a little bit of the history of it? Sure. Port Authority is 100 years old. It is a bi-state agency. It was created by New York and New Jersey. That requires a congressional action to approve the creation of a bi-state agency. Under its jurisdiction uh, today are five airports, the three major New York, New Jersey airports, LaGuardia, JFK, Newark, but we also oversee Teterboro Airport, a general aviation airport, and a regional airport, New York Stewart. Uh, we have uh, six uh, or two bridges and six, and four tunnels, total of six on the Hudson River side. We uh, have a seaport. It's a very important seaport in the United States. It's the busiest on the East Coast, and we duke it out with the West Coast ports as to uh, who's the second busiest and first busiest. Uh, we have a commuter railroad uh, that goes – it connects northern New Jersey to Manhattan. Uh, we have, uh, and we have the World Trade Center site, uh, 16 acres in lower Manhattan. So we're uh, airports, bridges and tunnels, seaport, commuter railroad, and uh, overseer of the World Trade Center site in lower Manhattan. And what do you have against the folks in Connecticut? <laughs> <laughs> Have to go back a hundred years. It was all about it was all about the New York Harbor, New York, New Jersey Harbor, that prompted the founding of the Port Authority. So, if you live in the New York, New Jersey area, you cannot travel anywhere without touching the Port Authority someplace. It comes close to that. Yes, it does. What are the big projects that uh, you have underway that we've talked about a little bit in some of the recent episodes? Is this thirty billion dollar transformation? of the uh, the airports in the area. And can you uh, give us just a, a, a brief sort of overview of what the plan is there? Well, our plan is to bring our airports into the 21st century. If you went back uh, 10 years, all three of our airports, uh, LaGuardia, JFK, and Newark, were substandard, behind the times, uh, really outdated. Then Vice President Biden uh, famously a decade ago, uh, called LaGuardia a third world airport. I think it's fair to say it was probably uh, the, easily the worst airport in the United States and might even abide for that more broadly. But our commitment and our effort uh, through a $30 billion investment program, that's B, billion with a B, is to turn them into world-class facilities uh, that 
compare favorably to the best airports in the world. We completed an $8 billion rebuild of LaGuardia, uh, which has been widely applauded and uh, many, many awards, including two that characterized it as the best new airport in the world. But it was it was not a, just a modernization. It was not an upgrade. We tore down every single passenger facility at the airport and built anew. And our commitment there was world-class, which from the point of view of check-in uh, technology, security technology, iconic and uh, appealing concessions, public art installations, which we're trying to make a signature of Port Authority airports, really from curb to gate, from gate to curb, we wanted the passenger experience to be absolutely at the top, at the top level. Um, we're right in the middle of a $15 billion, 15 to $20 billion rebuild of Kennedy. Um, two of the smaller pieces of the redevelopment of Kennedy have completed, but we have two major international ter terminals in the middle of construction. We are rebuilding the, uh, the roadway network at Newark. Uh, we have opened this year, 2023, a brand new Terminal A, world-class quality, uh, award-winning, and we have a vision plan that, to continue with the complete transformation of Newark as well. So it is the single largest uh, investment, $30 billion, that the Port Authority has ever been through in terms of its airports. The project is uh, completing in phases. Does the planning take part in phases as well, or do you have the entire uh, project planned out when you start? Well, uh, we have used uh, the design-build construction technique, but the vision of the airport is complete. As when we go into the project, uh, we move to a thirty minimum 30% design framework, which is enough to bid out. We have, uh, these are done primarily as public-private partnerships. So the way we work from a execution point of view is to bring in a private partner who will not only build the, a new terminal, but will operate it over the long term. So at LaGuardia, our two partners were Delta on the one hand and a private consortium, LaGuardia Gateway Partners, on the other in the case of Kennedy, we have uh, an airline partner, we have a, uh, a an airport operating partner, and we have two what I would call investment uh, consortia. And what we look to the private partner is to work with us in terms of certainly the financing, very, very important because we're able to leverage uh, $3 of private, 3 to $4 of private financing for every dollar of Port Authority capital. So it enables us to have uh, a lot more financial heft as we go about uh, rebuilding these new airport terminals. But we also look to the private sector uh, from uh, where the private sector can do things better than the public sector. So we look to them to operate uh, from a commercial point of view, from a customer satisfaction point of view. Uh, we're partners with them so that in terms of operational excellence, as I say, customer satisfaction, certainly sustainability, almost every aspect of the of a terminal project 
we're trying to get the best of the public world where we hold people to high standards and the private world, which brings skills that sometimes or frequently exceed those in terms of actual operating commercial facilities from the private sector. When I think of the New York City airports, they're really, they're, they're in my blood. My, my grandfather was digging ditches, getting mosquito bites when Idlewild was being built. So it goes back that far. When I first flew out of Newark, I flew out of what was the only terminal, the North Terminal. And so I was able to watch Newark grow as I was living in the area and see what had happened. As we're revamping and rebuilding these airports, how long do we expect them to last? What are you planning for when you rebuild an airport in terms of years? Well, uh, the answer is as long as possible, but our uh, uh, gives you a little bit of humility to think about the answer to that question, which are, we certainly want them to last a minimum of 40 to 50 years. Uh, But the fact is that that's a technology challenge because technology is obviously changing extraordinarily rapidly in terms of where we are today. So you have to build these new terminals expecting that technology is going to evolve over time. And you have to build them in a way that you're able to incorporate new technology as it develops. We've also built these uh, in terms of time horizon, trying to look at resiliency, looking at the impacts of climate change. So need to look at what in terms of all all our airports are built on bodies of water. So you have to anticipate that there's going to be some level of sea level rise. Uh, you have to look at the at storms. Storms are increasing in within in intensity and in frequency. So you have to build in the anticipation of increasing storm surges on top of any sea level rise. And you have to look at all of the vulnerable uh, technology, uh, electrical substations, control facilities, anything that. Uh, is electrical or sensitive, and those have to be built uh, above the threat of uh, of any of any storm surge. So all of that is looked at uh, with a 40, 50, 60 year time horizon. Hmm. And Rick, like Micah, I am originally from New Jersey, so I spend an awful lot of time uh, shuttling my father to and from our house in New Jersey to Newark Airport. And one of the things that hasn't seemed to change much in the years is getting from the airport and all three airports into Manhattan. And I was just recently in Newark and ended up taking a private bus, you know, the coach bus, because the train system is so terrible. In JFK, I've heard with the new modernization program, you're going to fix that so the train doesn't have to go through Jamaica Station or it'll be a much easier transition. LaGuardia hasn't had train service, and I don't know if there's anything planned for that, but LaGuardia is just sort of the the orphan stepchild. What are you guys doing to make transportation into Manhattan a little bit easier? Well, it's an absolutely excellent question. Let me start uh, with... Well, just in the same order you mentioned them. Start with Newark. Uh, we are totally committed and really in the midst of procurement of a new air train at Newark Airport. The existing one is outdated. Sorry, excuse me. Um, is outdated, undersized, uh, way past its uh, its design life. We're going to completely replace that. Sorry. The uh, situation at Kennedy uh, has been 
uh, dramatically affected by uh, an, an MTA project where you can now get to Jamaica either from Grand Central or from uh, Penn Station in, uh, in Manhattan. It's uh, in less than 15 minutes. It is uh, it's a second or third stop on their, their main line. And that will connect, and we're looking to improve this connection significantly to the, uh, to the air train. So that has become, by virtue of the MTA's uh, project, significantly improved. At LaGuardia, uh, we recognize the challenge in terms of public transit access to LaGuardia. Um, we had the ambition to build an air train. Cost just ran away from us. Governor Hochul made the decision that uh, we needed better access, but that in light of the escalating costs and challenges of the air train project, we have now moved to what is a more efficient uh, plan to improve dramatically the bus service from that connects LaGuardia to, uh, to the subway. So the challenges are real, but we're dealing with a built environment. And so we're we are open to and interested in new technologies that may improve the ability uh, to provide uh, improved public transportation. But we are doing what we, I guess what I would say is we can do given given the built environment and given the limitations on having a uh, the ability to have a, a one-stop train service to the airports. Uh, Rick, um, we frequently use the word the term passenger experience, and I think you even used it earlier, and certainly a, a part of the passenger experience is transportation to and from the airport. But under this project, are there other uh, metrics, other measures of uh, passenger experience that have been uh, important to this project, things that you expect to uh, to change, to be different when the project's completed? Max, one of the Real changes we've tried to effectuate in the in the last five to eight years at the Port Authority, generally, specifically at the airport, is to focus very, very heavily on the passenger experience. So the answer is we devote an enormous amount of effort looking at the various rating services that look at passenger experience that evaluate on the base of different criteria all aspects of the airport. Uh, so we are looking really curb to gate. We are we are looking at the security wait times, and we're publishing those in advance, and we're working with the TSA really at every opportunity to try to shorten those and to provide information on those. We're looking at the uh, offerings in terms of concessions. We have made a feature of the new construction, public art installations, and uh, iconic and upgraded concessions so that the experience of the airport is literally part of the journey, part of the, of, uh, uh, that the passenger will take note of and remember and remember favorably and have a, uh, a positive impact in terms of reducing the stress that accompanies, uh, that accompanies travel. I have to tell you, there's, uh, as, as we talk, the Wall Street Journal very recently, I think it published it in two phases, one yesterday, one today, which quoted and, uh, quoted passengers as saying they go to LaGuardia early so that they can spend time 
in the in the airport. And what I would say is that's what we're striving for. Yeah, that never used to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the old LaGuardia, that's for sure. No. Uh, but but it is true of the new LaGuardia because the all of those offerings from concessions to trying to speed people through security, try to uh, give them something interesting and appealing to look at uh, in terms of public art, having wall-to-ceiling uh, glass so that it's natural light. It's, uh, it's a pleasant place to be. It doesn't have the tarps hanging the way the old LaGuardia had to catch leaks from the roof. So passenger experience has really become a beacon by which we steer in terms of how the airport is designed, the features. Uh, another example is the bathrooms. One of the first things I did when I came to the Port Authority was to call up managers of some of the top-rated airports around the country. And one of the messages back was uh, bathrooms are key to passenger experience and to ratings and to experience. So I was trying to look at eat to journey map in the current lexicon to look at every aspect of the passenger's experience and try to improve it, try to make it as um, as appealing as possible. So you're going to be building more uh, lavatories at Newark Airport? Because <laughs> the they seem is, to be woefully lacking. Uh, in, the old, in the old facilities, I will tell you that we have uh, given a, a number of, uh, of uh, our terminal operators a very hard time over that. But the answer is we want more lavatories. We want better lavatories. We want every aspect of the, uh, of the facilities provided by the airport paying attention to what it is that makes a difference to travelers. Kind of a, along those same lines, you know, this doesn't affect Brian. He's a you know, lifetime 1K status with United and a lifetime member of the clubs for all the airlines. So he doesn't have to you know, pay for anything when he eats when he goes to the, go to the airport. But, but I, I sure do. And, you know, and if I decide to go to, let's say, you know, McDonald's, for lack of a better thing, and I want to get a Big Mac meal these days, it's probably going to cost me $15. If I want to get that same meal at an airport, it's going to cost me $25 or $30. Now, I know that food prices at airports always need to be inflated because it's paying for the airport, but at the New York airports, those prices are supposed to be monitored to reflect the uh, outside prices as well. All the stories I've read and the experiences that I have seen and heard from say that the monitoring isn't going so well. Is that being looked into? Is that being worked on? Uh, we have focused on that uh, value for money uh concession prices, and we do have a regulation which limits uh, concessionaires to 110% of so-called street price. And we have put effort into, into monitoring that. There is a reality, which it's important to, re to remember, which is that operating at an airport is, is simply more expensive than it is outside. And that's what the 110% represents. Uh, other uh, thing that's important to remember is the New York, New Jersey area, for better or for worse, is more expensive than other areas of the country. Having said that, we really try to ensure that concessionaires offer uh, specials, offer value for money, and we do monitor their overall pricing. It is, as I say, at 110% of the street pricing, but it does take into account the uh, higher uh, cost of living in the New York, New Jersey area. Sure, that makes sense. Now, Rick, I know you've got only just 
limited time, but uh, I wanted to ask, is the, uh, is the project on schedule and on budget? Well, I'm very proud to say, I mean, the one that we have really brought to conclusion has been LaGuardia. And LaGuardia has been absolutely on time and on budget. And it, it did that in the face of the COVID-19 challenges. Now, in one sense, it helped construction because there were fewer cars on the roadways so that that part of the, uh, of the construction could go a bit faster. But the, the challenge in terms of safe construction, COVID was a big, was a big challenge. But if you look at the project, it, it finished in between five and a half and six years for an $8 billion infrastructure project. Uh, it has won multiple prizes. So, we're very proud of not only the end product, but of the time frame and on budget uh, framework that we brought it in at. Kennedy uh, is a work in progress. It is. It has, uh, as I said, it's between fifteen and twenty billion dollars of construction over the next four to six years. It will unfortunately cause some degree of inconvenience. There will be um, temporary roads, there will be times uh, where the construction will be felt by the traveler. Uh, but we are, we've learned a lot from, from LaGuardia. LaGuardia operated all through the construction and we expected the volumes of passengers to go down. Instead, it was absolutely the reverse. Pre-COVID, every month was a new, was a new record. But we learned a lot, which is we set up special airport operations centers, which had eyes, meaning cameras on every inch of the roadways. And anytime delays or congestion would occur one place on the airport, there were established uh, what we called plays, established modifications, uh, mitigations that are put into effect to respond to those. So that's what we're using at Kennedy. We put those in place at Newark. And uh, so the, uh, the schedule, uh, if I come back to the schedule at Kennedy, those are uh, going to be those new ter- terminals will have their phase ones will open in about four years and they will complete in about six years. And for the scale of uh, a project, that's actually pretty quick. Rick, I was going to say, I can honestly say that the Delta building at LaGuardia is absolutely gorgeous and it deserves all of the awards that it's won. I haven't seen the rest of LaGuardia, so I can't comment on that. Being at Newark, Terminal A is absolutely gorgeous as well. The one big miss seems to be the lack of train service to Terminal A. Can you talk about why that wasn't complete when the terminal building was complete? And what is the timeline for getting train service out to Terminal A? Well, I'm delighted you asked that question. (laughs) The the old... (laughs) The old air train station is relatively far away from the entrance of the new Terminal A, but the air train is being completely replaced. And so uh, the timing uh, in an ideal world would have been exactly the same, but these are major projects. So the air train station for the new Terminal A will be right adjacent to the new Terminal A. There's currently a walkway that goes from the new Terminal A to the new parking garage and centralized rental car facility. The new air train station will be right there. It'll be connected to that connector uh, to get into the uh, into Terminal A. You won't have to go outside. That will happen in five years. What I can say in terms of the 
the uh, the current situation is we have provided a shuttle. Uh, we're some we're apologetic to people that it's uh, it's not right next door, but short answer to your question is it's coming. Yeah. Well, Rick, you've been involved in some really giant projects in your career. And what what is the magic? What is the key to uh, pulling off these kinds of huge, huge projects? How do you do it? <laughs> well, it's a team sport. That's point number one, which is uh, you have to have everybody pulling in the same direction. So uh, and you also have to recognize that the the infrastructure projects these days are so complicated and so complex that technology, everything uh, from the IT systems to the sa- uh, safety systems in, in particular, but all of the electronics and technology, uh, security and otherwise that go into it, uh, that it really requires an attention to detail by every organization that's working on the project. And there are multiple organizations. So that one of the roles that a sponsor or a, uh, a supervisory organization like the Port Authority has to bring to the table is to be sure, is to put pressure on every single aspect of the project. And sometimes it's actually delays can be created by organizations that are outside the control of a construction company or a terminal operator or sponsor. If you need a a civic, a, a municipal organization to carry out a certain relocation, if you need a utility to work with you to relocate, again, utility lines, if you need a supplier. I mean, during COVID, we heard all about supply line challenges. Well, you need everybody working together to put pressure on suppliers, to put pressure on utilities, to put pressure on all of the different organizations outside the construction project. And then you really need to be sure that the construction company is on its game. And uh, it, it takes a lot of effort to do that. And it takes a lot of attention to, to detail. And uh, I think we've been successful in getting all of those multiple participants to recognize that uh, delay is not okay. And that it takes, uh, it takes everybody pulling together. And if some part of the schedule falls behind, the question is, what do you do to recover schedule? And you've got everybody pulling together with that kind of a framework around the project. And, and finally, have very high aspirations. I mean, these are, these are intended to be not only well designed enterprises, but they're intended to look at every aspect as they get built. Uh, that it's meeting up to the high standards, meeting up to safety standards, and it's it's going to produce a, a product at the end of the day that travelers will have uh, the reaction that we're seeing many travelers react, which is, wow, didn't realize that this was what uh, a uh, an airport terminal in New York and New Jersey could possibly look like. Very good. All right, Rick, thanks for, again for spending a few moments with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for the conversation and thank you for the opportunity. We could have gone on with him for another two hours easily. 
easily. Was he that interesting? It really, well, it was, and also uh, the number of topics that we would have liked uh, to uh, to discuss, um, including things like, um, what about vertiports? What about the future? You know, they're, they're rebuilding these these airports with an eye towards, as I think it was you, Mike, that asked the question, how, how far into the future do you, you know, do you plan for these airports to still be uh, responsive to the needs of the uh, the operators and the flying public, and you know it's 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 a long term view. Um, you know, what about urban air mobility, for example? How does that figure into the planning? There were just a number of different topics that we could have gone into. But yeah, just to talk to somebody who uh, he's working on a thirty billion dollar project, and that's only a small part of his budget. Just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Interesting guy. So we really appreciate being able to speak with him. All right. What's up with the geeks? Um, let's see. Micah, how about you first? Well, I uh, just got back last week from Tampa, Florida, where I was able to visit with Brian in person and meet his mother, who is just so sweet and so kind. I have no idea where Brian came from. Were, were you um, nice to her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can't not be nice to her. She's really, uh, Dolores Coleman is a really sweet woman and a former travel agent. And uh, we actually interviewed her about her uh, travel experiences and uh, and being a travel agent. And that'll appear on the Journey is Reward podcast in the next couple of weeks. But the best part of that, well, I don't know if it's the best part. The meetup was just incredible. Florida pizza is not the best, but when you have the right company, it doesn't matter. <laughs> But I got to fly on Breeze Airways, David Neelam's new airline. The service was spectacular, comfortable, quiet, an A3, uh, A220 or C-Series. Uh, absolutely beautiful, brand-new airplane. Uh, flight attendants were great. And I got to fly both ways with the same pilot who happened to be the former director of flight operations but wanted to get back in the sky. And uh, just a wonderful time, beautiful cockpit. I think you guys would love it. And uh, just I can't recommend them enough. I need to say... Breeze paid for my flight, but if they hadn't, I would be saying the exact same things. Nobody knew that they had paid for my flight. I was treated like a regular customer. If you get a chance to fly Breeze, it's an airline you're going to love. Yeah, I'm kind of looking for an excuse to, to fly on Breeze. Maybe, uh, maybe I should have gone to Florida with you, Micah. Next time. Next time. Rob, you were going to say okay. something. Max, I was going to ask, when was the last time you actually flew on an airplane? Me? Yeah. Um, it was when I went to Seattle, um, which would was have that been... in this century or the last one? No, it, no, it was this century, but oh, um, okay. maybe three years ago. Maybe it's been about three years since I've flown Was that before or after you went to the Alshead Museum, or we went to the Alshead Museum? After. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Just, just curious. Listeners wanted to know. Listeners wanted to know. All right. And uh, Rob, what about... Uh, what about you? You've been uh, cooking up an interesting idea. I like, I'm sorry, I'm going to give away the fact that I'm a movie buff. I just love good TV and good movies. And and what better kind of movie could there be than an airplane movie, a flying movie, you name it. So I thought, what if we asked listeners uh, to our show to send an email to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com and tell us what your favorite airplane movie of all time is that was not one of the Top Gun movies. 
because as Micah rightly pointed out, if we don't eliminate Top Gun, everybody will just say Top Gun because it's the only movie that you've probably ever seen, have ever seen anyway. Um, so th- there are lots and lots of them uh, when you go back over the years. And to, let's, what we call it, to butter the bread? No, that's not. To grease the wheel? Uh, well, to make this a little more fun, we're going to give away a a fifty dollar gift certificate, and we'll uh, what we'll do uh, by uh, let's see what should we have for a deadline? Maybe the end of the year, our December thirty first, to get an email to us, tell us what your favorite airplane movie of all time is that was not Top Gun, and uh, we'll have a random drawing of all the people that uh, have uh, sent in a. Uh, uh, a um, entry. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a random drawing of all the people that have sent in an entry. <laughs> <laughs> it's these big words. My brain just anyway. And then we'll uh, we'll uh, send you that fifty dollars gift certificate, and we'll mention your name on the air as the winner, and and of course the movie that uh, you like. But we'll also uh, you know uh, tabulate the results and tell you maybe what uh, the first top 10 of uh, movies were. I I mean, I, I would find it a little hard to do that right now. I've seen so many that I thought were good, but uh, we'll still see what happens. So again, send us a message, airplane, uh, the geeks at airplanegeeks.com. Tell us your favorite airplane movie. It's not Top Gun, and you might win that drawing for a $50 gift certificate. And that's $50 toward anything at the Airplane Geeks online store, right? There you go. Uh, there is no online store. Exactly. I was going to say, we have a store. <laughs> yeah. Micah, exactly. no, that's my no, point. No. Micah, you beat me to it. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say as well. <laughs> could be redeemed for our merchandise. Yeah, yeah. And to make it uh, easy and uh, or helpful, let's say, to, to stand out, uh, just put the word movie somewhere in the subject of that email. That way we can, you know, pick those out, um, pick those out easily. So, yeah, be fun. Send it to us by December 31st, 2023. And then the beginning of the year, the beginning of the new year, we'll, we'll do all the tabulation, do a random selection, announce the winner. And I'm interested in hearing what uh, also, besides what our listeners find to be the best aviation movie of all time, is what you know, each of uh, the, uh, the hosts here uh, think is the, their favorite. But we're not telling you right now. No, not telling. Don't want to influence the result. I already know what mine is. Um, but we'll have to wait till January to find out. I feel like I'm going back to choosing my favorite airplane again. I had to do it, I think, three times to get it right. <laughs> All right. Quickly, um, some listener mail. Oh, hey, in our um, last episode, our guest wrote uh, Why Flying is Miserable. And he really, he admitted he really wrote that to stimulate conversation. And uh, judging from the, the number of comments coming in that we've received so far, I think he's a succeeded in doing in doing that um so uh i i don't think uh, we want to spend a lot of time but just mention uh some of the views um jeffrey wrote to us andy wrote to us um paulo also and uh, the uh, the reactions uh, they they vary a lot some folks are skeptical or disagree with some of the solutions People question whether the, the decline in fares after deregulation uh, was 
solely because of deregulation or whether there were other factors at play here that led to it. And if, in fact, uh, price reductions, uh, ticket price reductions had already been a trend or not. Um, so a, a variety of uh, a variety of comments and uh, you know, encourage people who who do have some thoughts on that, who haven't written in yet to go ahead and go ahead and do that. And, uh, you know, we continue to kind of absorb all of the views and things. But it's been it's been kind of fun to see what people have to say. And I just want to point out that that our guest, uh, Ganesh Sitarman, and I'm sorry I wasn't here for that. Um, he, he's he been on a couple of NPR podcasts and shows since then, and uh, it was very interesting. But I want to point out, we had him first. <laughs> we had him first. That's right. And then one other item uh, Tom wrote to us, and I just thought this was kind of interesting. It's a an article from The Hill. Pentagon unveils new form for reporting UFO sightings. So there is uh, something called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, A-A-R-O, as part of the Department of Defense. Do you think that's Arrow? Do you think you call that Arrow, A-A-R-O? I guess that that makes sense. So there's an Arrow website. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Well, it's it's Arrow, A-A-R-O dot mil, M-I-L. And that uh, website just went up in, in this past August. And they say they're there to provide official declassified information on UAPs, including pictures and videos for the public to view. So um, that's that's very interesting. And those of you who are interested in that topic might find some interesting stuff there, particularly, I think, as time goes by. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that this new form, this isn't meant for the public to use. So if you see a, a UFO or a UAP now, it's not necessarily for you but um, it's it's mostly focused, I think, on military reporting of these of these kinds of events. So then, I guess I'm wondering why we're even talking about this. Because it's a place where you can go and learn more about UFOs and, and see some declassified information. So if you're really into so it, so we'll see the the little guy from Roswell, perhaps. Yeah, if you're really into it, go back and listen to the old Art Bell shows. Gosh. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hey, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to, again, thank our our guest, Rick Cotton, the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Find show notes there, direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 775. And as you know, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. Max Trescott, anything closing or? Sure. Well, let me just mention that uh, last week was productive one for me. I put out uh, three episodes of Aviation News Talk, so episodes 300, 301, and 302, all of which were related to discussing a couple of different accidents that had happened in Southern California, including a Cessna P210 that crashed last week. We included a lot of ATC audio and kind of uh, you know tried to help explain exactly what went wrong with uh, with these flights. So you can check it out at the Aviation News Talk podcast. Cool. And Rob Mark, how about you? I guess I'm just trying to imagine myself as the uh, administrator of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office for the Department of Defense. Can you imagine saying that at a party? Uh, Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. 
But uh, no, nothing special, just getting ready for Turkey Day, which happens for us here in a couple of days. And uh, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. All right. And Micah, how about you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at MainFly, that's M-A-I-N-E-F-L-Y, and also you can find me with Brian Coleman, our former associate producer on the Journey is a Reward podcast. We just released episode 56, where we discuss Brian's trip to Chicago and the Chicago Marathon, and also a little bit of discussion about whether Chicago pizza is really pizza. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Start a war, huh? All right. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online by visiting 30,000feet.com. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. And for David, thanks for listening. Now, are you guys familiar with how LaGuardia Airport actually was built and why? Well, back in the 1930s, Mayor LaGuardia, the mayor of New York, very famous mayor, was traveling back from, I believe, a trip to Washington, D.C. On, on, on an airline. I don't know what airline it was. And uh, bought a ticket to New York City. And they landed him in Newark. And he said, I bought a ticket to New York. I'm not getting off the plane. And they said, well, this is where the, this is, this is the airport. And he says, the ticket says New York. I am in New Jersey. I'm not getting off the plane until I'm taken to New York. The ticket says New York City. And they eventually flew him to Floyd Bennett Field, which was, uh, I believe, a, a naval aviation base at the time. And so that's in Brooklyn. And he got off the plane there. And at that point, they said, okay, we need to build an airport in New York. And it became LaGuardia Airport.